informed just before I came up that uh, we forgot to pass the plate. <laughs> That's all right. You've got plenty of time to make your checks out, payable to Cornerstone Baptist Church. No, I'm we're going to take up the offering after the message this morning, so that's all right, right? Uh, many people have stood here and told you how things are going to be a little different, and that's okay. God is still here. He will still be glorified, and so here we go. Pastor Rick asked the four of us who will be filling in for him this month that we preach through the new mission statement of Cornerstone Baptist Church, gather, grow, give, and go, and so each of us is tasked with taking one of those four terms and preaching to you a message that would come from Scripture on that. And so this first week, we're going to be talking about gathering together. And I want to commend Pastor Rick for asking us to do that. And, and what you might not realize is that I would think that many pastors would like to keep something as important as the mission of their church sort of close to the vest, right? And you probably remember back in September, Pastor Rick actually preached through these four terms himself. But instead of being himself holding on to it and saying, okay, this is my thing, he let that go to these four individuals, not even me planning four consecutive weeks, but four separate individuals who will stand here and give you four very different perspectives on these four terms and trusting that the word of God will speak, not the men before you. And so that's my hope and my prayer this morning is that the word of God will speak. I've entitled this message, Gathering Together, God's Provision, God's Promise, and God's Plan. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the local gathering, your body of believers, your church as God's provision, God's promise, and God's plan. But you know, God could have done it some other way. He could have chosen some other way for us to worship Him, not gathering corporately together, but He provided to us the local congregation, so that we could gather together. He promised that where two or more are gathered together in his name, he will be there also. And he planned out that we should not forsake the gathering of together, but that we should continuously come together to worship him in spirit and in truth. I got to start and tell you that today's sermon might be a little bit different than and, and that just goes along with our theme, right, of, of things being a little bit different. Change is going to take place. And so what happened as I was sort of praying through this message is, okay, Lord, where do you want me to go with this topic of gathering, right? How can I, how can I preach through gathering together? And I could have done some things, you know, maybe very typical that you would have thought about um, you know, gathering believers into the body of Christ, like the first century church where they went out and they proclaimed boldly the gospel of Christ and many were added to their numbers. So it could have been a very evangelistic message. I could have maybe even done something on God himself and the doctrine of God and how God draws souls to himself. I could have preached a very salvific message in gathering. And in fact, the first thing that came to my mind when I started thinking and praying about gathering was how Joseph gathered the grain during the seven years of plenty in Egypt. 
I love the story of Joseph. It's absolutely one of my favorites in Scripture. And if you hear me preach ten times, I will tell you all ten times, oh, this is my absolute favorite story in all of Scripture, because all of Scripture is my favorite. But I am drawn to the story of Joseph. I just absolutely love how God has woven intricately his blessing and his providence into that scripture. And so I started to study these last chapters of Genesis. I started reading through these chapters. And I, what I quickly learned is that I'm not going to preach on Joseph as much as I'm going to preach on Jacob. Things started to develop and started to change and started to take shape as I read through and I studied and prayed about what I would bring you today about gathering. And, and I came up with these three terms, if you will, God's provision, God's promise, and God's plan. And there are three very unique gatherings at the end of Jacob's life that we're going to look at. We're going to look at these events. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention something about the new year, right? As you look back and you consider 2018 and the year that has just passed us, what are some of the events, what are some of the memories that come to mind for you? You know, psychologists will tell us that memories are formed when events are associated with emotion. So your average daily mundane routine might not burn into your mind a memory, brushing your teeth in the morning or getting up and eating breakfast or some of those things, right? You might have already forgotten what you ate for breakfast this morning. Maybe you didn't eat breakfast at all. Sorry. Um, lunch is a little ways off still. But those events that we attach to emotions, those events that we maybe highly anticipate, like a wedding or a birth of a child, maybe something very unexpected, maybe you didn't anticipate it at all, but it came up suddenly, a health problem, some type of a, a, a sudden life change, right? Something goes on, and all of a sudden it's really emotional. You attach emotion to that event, and you burn a memory into your mind. What are those memories that come to mind from 2018? What are those things that maybe you don't want to remember from this past year? We're going to look at some events like that from the life of Jacob. We're going to look at one event that was completely unexpected but highly emotional. One event that was highly anticipated and highly emotional. And one event that was highly emotional and somewhat anticipated. As we walk through these three events at the end of Jacob's life. I want to read a passage of scripture to you and as way of introduction I apologize that that was a little longer than typical. But again, change, right? We're going to do things a little differently. Turn in your scriptures, if you will, to Psalm 115. And I have it here on the board. I know that in the bulletin, we're going to be preaching out of Genesis 45 and 47 and 50. And you may have already turned there. But I want you to flip over to Psalm 115. And I want to show you God's provision, God's promise, and God's plan here at the end of Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verses 11 through 18. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. 
The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth has been given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we can praise you this morning. We pray, Lord, that we can be worshipful. We pray, Lord, that as we study through the end of the life of Jacob, Father, we can truly understand what it means to gather together as a congregation of believers. We pray, Lord, that our hearts be opened and our minds be ready to receive what you would teach us this morning. In Jesus' holy name, amen. <clears throat> so I told you that this might not look like a typical message that you would hear on a Sunday morning. And the reason is, is that I, I haven't developed a purposeful takeaway for you. I haven't given you an outline of, of concrete points that I'm going to give to you that you're going to write down in your... I kind of have this very broad brush stroke... And I'm going to tell you a story. And what that means is that each one of us might walk away this morning with some different takeaway. Each of us might gather something different from the story, and that's completely okay. Because that's what's happened to me. I can't tell you how many times as I was preparing this and as I was reading through these chapters in Genesis, I would call my wife, Katie, come in here, come in here, come in here, listen, listen to what it says. And I'd read from the scripture. And how many times have you heard the story of Joseph? How many times have you read a little bit about Jacob's life? How many times have you looked at these good old Sunday school lessons and yet you go back to the deep well of scripture and find something more? And I was just astounded by how much more there was. And as I'm going, and as I'm going, and as I'm collecting, and as I'm calling Katie in, and as she's hearing more about this, she's going, you're going to preach for an hour. I'm going to try not to preach for an hour. I'm going to give you a little bit of context just to start. We're going to, we're going to start our story with the life of Joseph, right? And when Joseph was 17 years old, he had this dream. And Hopefully you know about this dream. I'm not going to go too far into depth with this dream, but he actually had two dreams. He had the one dream of the sheaths bowing down to him, right? And so him and his brothers were in the field, and they were collecting their grain, and the 11 sheaths of wheat bowed down to his sheath of wheat. And he told his brothers this, and they got mad. <clears throat> this 17-year-old little kid with his coat of many colors telling us that we're going to bow down to him. Where do you get off? We're out here working, and you're at home lounging around because Daddy loves you best. Parents, have your kids ever had that conversation? Which one does he love best? <clears throat> well, he had a second dream. He had a dream of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And he told that to his father and he told that to his brothers and even his father rebuked him and said will your mother and I even bow down to you and so as this confused teenage boy was kind of having these dreams and wondering what was going on and of course you all know this part of the story right he went out to see his brothers in the field and they conspired against him what are we going to do we're going to kill him right 
Now, I grew up with two older brothers. And I can't tell you what went through their minds because I don't live in their minds, but I promise you that there were times that they wanted to kill their little brother. There were a couple of times when they even came close. <clears throat> the reality is, you know, and, and I, I, I debated on how much to share with you about some of my personal struggles from this last year. If you know our family and, and you've heard some of these things that have gone on, um, <clears throat> But, but with some of my recent medical issues and some of the testing that's gone on, I had an MRI of my brain, and, and one of the doctors actually commented, when did you have a skull fracture? And I had to think about that for a minute. I said, skull fracture? What are you like, No, I've never had a skull fracture. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an old fracture here on the left side of your skull. It's, it's old. It's been healed, but it's there. The remnants of it are still there. We can see it in the scans. Now, I was probably eight or nine years old, and we were out in the backyard playing baseball, right, as kids will, and my brother, who was about eight years older than me, didn't do it on purpose. I was, I was trying to play catcher, and I'm crouched down, and, I'm, and I leaned in a little bit, and that aluminum baseball bat caught me right here on the left side of the temple. Now, that's the only event that I can go back to and picture. Now, again, that wasn't purposeful. There were other stories I could tell you where they tried a little bit harder than that. <clears throat> but here this 17-year-old boy went out to see his brothers in the field, and they conspired against him. And, and Reuben, the oldest one, he stands up. He says, no, no, don't kill him, right? So what do they do? They throw him in a pit, and they wait for a little while, and the slave traders come along, and they, they sell their teenage brother into a bondage. They take his coat of many colors and they tear it and they dip it in blood and they take it back to their father and they tell their father he's been eaten. He's been torn apart. For the next 22 years, those brothers convinced themselves that Joseph was dead and gone. For the next 22 years, Jacob mourned his son Joseph as being dead and gone. And for the next 22 years, Joseph lived in Egypt. And again, you probably know much of the story, right? He prospered as a slave until he was falsely accused. And then he was thrown into prison where he interpreted some dreams. And then he was forgotten in that dungeon until the Pharaoh had a dream. And then he was brought before Pharaoh. And when he stood before Pharaoh, he was 30 years old. Thirty years old, he stood before Pharaoh and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and he said, God has shown you what's about to take place. You're going to have these seven years of plenty and you're going to have these seven years of famine. Now, it wasn't unlikely for one Pharaoh to die and pass on the reign to a much younger child. We don't know who this Pharaoh was that Joseph interpreted this dream for completely accurately. We don't know how old this Pharaoh was, but we know that Scripture tells us Joseph was as a father to him. And when we look at what Scripture says, when we look at the story, what happens here is that the Pharaoh says, who is wiser than this man? Who is more discerning than Joseph? And he takes his signet ring and he puts it on Joseph's finger and he takes a gold chain and he hangs it around Joseph's neck and he loads Joseph up in the exact same chariot as the Pharaoh would ride in, which nobody does. 
And he takes Joseph around and he shows him all of the kingdom and he says, this is all under your authority. And he tells all of his subjects and all of his rulers and everybody that would answer to him as Pharaoh, he says, do what he says. And so everything has been built up for Joseph to be in this place of power, this place of authority, this place where God has granted him something that he would have never had being a shepherd in the wilderness. So the seven years of plenty go on and Joseph collects all of the grain into the storehouses so much that it can't even be measured. And his brothers eventually have to come down and buy grain as the famine comes in. In the first year of the famine, his ten brothers come down to see him. Remember, 22 years have passed. Time has elapsed here. He disguises himself. He looks like an Egyptian. He speaks through an interpreter, Scripture says. Now, I want you to just paint this picture in your head, right? Because all of the people from all around the area would be coming in to buy grain. They'd be coming in, and and this would be a well-oiled machine probably by this point, right? You'd come in, you'd put your money down, you'd get your grain, you'd leave. You'd come in, you'd put your money down, you'd get your grain, you'd leave. And there's there's a line revolving through this place. And Joseph stops the proceedings when he sees these ten men walk in, and he says, you're spies. He picked out his ten brothers because he recognized them, and he accused them of something. He wanted to see how they would react. He wanted to see what would take place. He questioned them about their father and about their brother. He pressed them and pressed them and pressed them for information. And all the while, he disguised himself and he spoke through an interpreter. They didn't know he understood every word they were saying. And as they talked amongst themselves, they even came up with, here it is, God's getting us back for selling Joseph all those years ago. The blood of our brother is on our hands. Joseph, you know the story, sent them back not only with grain, but returned all their money in their bags with them. But he held in hostage one brother, Simeon. He held one brother back and said, bring back your youngest brother to prove your story, that you're not spies. Bring back this supposed youngest brother that you have, this Benjamin. An entire year passes before Jacob will allow Benjamin to go back with them. Another year, they've used up all the grain that they were given. And finally, they get to go back and Two of the brothers plead with their father to send Benjamin back. The first one was Reuben, the oldest. And it's so interesting how in Scripture, Reuben says, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can put my two sons to death. What a man. Puts his kids on the chopping block. Dad, you know, I I know you really love Benjamin, and I know he's the, the last son of your dead wife, your favored wife. And, um, you know, I, I need to take him down so we can buy more grain. And if I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons. How's that work for you? Later in the story, Judah goes to his father. Judah's plea to his father is very different. You see, their, their food is running out. 
they have to go back to Egypt. Everybody knows they have to go back to Egypt. And the only way they can go back to Egypt is if they take Benjamin with them. And Judah goes to his father and he says, Dad, I'm going to keep him safe. And if I don't bring him back, my life is forfeit. Dad, I'm not coming home if he doesn't come with me. I'm going to do everything in my power up to the point of death to protect your son. Please let me take him. And Jacob says, go. Take him. Take the money that you came back with by accident. Take double the money to buy the grain. Take the best of the land that we still have. Take everything that you can as a gift to this man and take Benjamin. And they walk into the court of Joseph and Joseph sees his baby brother. Nobody knows exactly how old Benjamin was when Joseph was sold into slavery, but the best estimations we can make is that he was probably between 8 and 10 years old. Now, I happen to have a 10-year-old son and a 17-year-old son. I know what that age difference looks like between two boys. I know how they interact with each other. I have just maybe a small glimpse into what the relationship between Joseph and Benjamin would have looked like at the time that Joseph was sold into slavery. And here, all of these years later, Joseph finally sees his baby brother as a grown man. As a man, Scripture tells us, had ten children of his own. And what does Joseph do? He runs out of the room crying. The most powerful man in all of Egypt is overwhelmed by emotion. He tells his house steward, he says, go to my home and prepare a meal. I'm going to eat lunch with them. Something that can't be done. You see, the Egyptians looked down upon the Israelites, these nomads, the Canaanites, these people that came from, they weren't even allowed to sit at the same table with each other. And as we go through the story, I promise I'm coming to more. You're going you're gonna to get it. It's all going to unfold here really quickly. As we continue to go through, we see Joseph goes and he washes his face and he comes in and the meal's been prepared. And Joseph, being the ruler of the household, is sitting at one table and his Egyptian servants are sitting at another table and his brothers are sitting at yet another table and they are all in birth order. Eleven men who were born in the span of 13 years and they guessed right the correct order of their birth and set them in accord. No, no. It was Joseph who knew exactly who his brothers were and told his servants how to put them in order. They were seated in birth order. And then Joseph got up from his own table, the thing he wasn't allowed to do. He went over to the table of the Hebrews, a thing he wasn't allowed to do, and he sat portions down in front of each one of his brothers from his own table. And when he got to Benjamin, he sat five times as much in front of him. You remember what his father used to do for him when he was 17? Remember how his father gave him a coat of many colors? Remember how his father favored him over the other brothers? Joseph was doing the exact same thing to Benjamin. 
Joseph wanted to see exactly how his brothers would react now that they were a little bit old. I'm going to favor the youngest. I'm going to give him five times more. I'm going to favor him. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to eat with you all. I'm going to do something I'm not even allowed to do by our customs, but I'm going to do it because I'm in charge of everything and I can. And time and time again, you see his brothers in absolute fear and terror of the man that they're standing before. They have no idea what's going on. Put yourself in the shoes of one of these men. Why are we being called to his house? Where are they taking our donkeys? Why are they giving them food? Why are they putting them in the stable? Where are we going now? Why are we being taken into this room? Why, Why are we being sat down? Wait, why are we in the right order? Wait, why is he giving Benjamin more food than us? Wait, what's happening here? Are we in trouble? They even question the house steward at one point in time. They even, look, look, he says in, in, chapter, 20, in chapter 43, he says, the, the brothers, chapter 43, look at verse 22. They're questioning why they're here in his house. They're questioning if they're in trouble. They go to the house steward and they say, we have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money back into our sacks. They're making excuses for the last time they were here. Yes, the money showed back up, but we brought it back and we brought more money with us. Listen to what the steward says in verse 23. He said, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God... And the God of your father has given you treasures in your sack. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Do you see what he said? I had your money. I'm the one that took your payment. I put it in my own hand. And then I put it back in your sack. Because your God and the God of your fathers has given you treasure. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared of what's going on here. Your money was returned to you purposefully. You have no reason to fear. God's provision, God's blessings, you see, they don't look like our ideas of blessings. How many of you have been in the midst of what God is doing in your life and been thinking about what's coming next? How many of you have been held up right in the middle of what God is trying to teach you and thought, what am I going to have for lunch? How many times do we look at the blessings that are right in front of our eyes and wish they were a little older or a little younger? You see, God's blessings don't always look like our ideas of what blessings are or should be. And so we need to recognize those blessings as coming from God. I want you to look at a couple of things here. And I know I don't have much time left, but in chapter 45. Hey, look, an amber alert. What? was God's provision, right? What was it in this first gathering event? All of that big, long story, all of that context to tell you that Jacob and his family were gathered into Egypt, 
Now, you all know the end of this story. You all know that later down the road, they're taken into slavery. You all know that all of the oppression that happens to them, all of the terrible things that happen in Egypt. But what would have happened if they had never come? They're in the second year of a seven-year famine, a famine that they don't know, by the way, how long it will last. We often read Scripture, right? We often can look at Scripture, and we, we have the whole story in front of us. But we don't know that, we don't remember that the characters who are playing in the story don't know all this. Joseph knows there's going to be seven years of famine. Egypt knows there's going to be a seven years of famine. Jacob and his sons living in Canaan don't know how long the famine's going to last. They're two years into a seven-year famine, and they're running out of food again. And I want you to see something that is so vitally important in chapter 45. Chapter 45 of Genesis, look down at verse 16. Joseph has just made himself known to his brothers. He has just told them, and again, remember, he sent them back again with the money in their bags. He put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. His servants went and chased them down. They opened up the bags and they said, whoever stole from your house, that person be your slave. They opened up Benjamin's bag, and all the brothers were just astounded. They tore their clothes. No, it can't be Benjamin. And they go back with him, and Judah does what Judah does. He takes Joseph by the arm, and he pulls him aside, and he says, O oh, great ruler, I have promised my father I will bring him back on my life. Take me instead. Take me instead. If Benjamin doesn't go home, our father will die. It can't be him. And Joseph breaks down. Finally, finally his brothers have seen a little bit about the torture that they put him through. Just a little portion of what he's gone through all of these years in Egypt. And they are willing to put themselves in the harm's way to protect one of their own. And jo Joseph just breaks down. He sends everybody out. He weeps so loudly that everyone in the whole palace hears it. And look at verse 16. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Remember who this Pharaoh was. Remember that nine years before this happening, the Pharaoh had his dream interpreted by Joseph. He put his signet ring on Joseph's finger. He put his gold chain around Joseph. He told everybody in the entire kingdom, do whatever he says. Pharaoh was more than happy to take a back seat to Joseph. Pharaoh never interfered in Joseph's affairs. In fact, Pharaoh went so far to say he has all of the authority. He has my ring. Anything he puts the stamp of Pharaoh on is rule in all of the land. You will do everything he says. And I'm going to sit over here and I'm going to reap the rewards because I know he's blessed. And this one time, this one time in Scripture we hear this Pharaoh speak. 
And this Pharaoh issues a decree, a command. Go back to your house. Take wagons with you. Load up your wives and your children and all of your goods. Leave your stuff behind because you won't need it. Because all of the greatness of Egypt is before you, and I'm going to give you the best. You see, God's provision. I want you to see one more thing before we move on here. Look down at the end of chapter 45 there in verse 28. You see, when his sons first come back to him, Jacob doesn't believe that Joseph is alive. And why would he? He's convinced himself for so many years that Joseph was dead. Why would he believe that his son was alive? And yet, we get down to verse 28. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Do you look at God's blessings and say, it is enough? Or do you look at God's blessings and say, God, I want more? The gathering of believers together is God's provision. Do you come in and say, it is enough? Or do you come in and look around and say, hmm, why aren't there more people here? God, what are you doing about that? And you know God saying, what are you doing about that? I have provided for you this wonderful gathering of believers. I've done this for you. It is enough. He wasn't focused on all the glories. He wasn't focused on the riches. He wasn't focused on the land. He wasn't focused on all of the things that Pharaoh promised him. He was focused on Joseph being alive, and he said, it is enough. I will go down to see him. The second gathering that we have to look at and I promise these are going to go a little bit quicker now that we've gotten the context undercover. You see, Joseph starts to gather all of the wealth of Egypt together. You've got to see, God's provision for Israel was to bring them into Egypt. And remember, I asked you that open-ended question, right? What would have happened if they had stayed? There was five more years of famine in the land of Canaan. What would have happened to them if they had stayed? No, they came into Egypt, and we know the end of the story, but put yourself in the position. They were given the land of Goshen. They were given all of the green pastures. They were given all of the, the, the flocks and the fields. All of the greatness of Egypt was before them, and Joseph ruled it all. But here we see God's promise. God's promise. You see... The next few years were very difficult because they were still five years left in a famine. And all of the people from not only Egypt, but all of the surrounding areas came to Joseph to buy food. And the first thing they used to buy their food was their money until Joseph owned all the money. And then they came to buy food with their livestock until Joseph owned all the livestock. And then they came to buy food with their land until Joseph owned all the land. And then they came and they sold themselves into slavery to Pharaoh to have grain to eat. And so by the end of the famine, Joseph had created an empire in Egypt which had all of the money, all of the animals, all of the land, and all of the inhabitants as servants of Pharaoh. You see, Joseph, by God's divine plan created an empire in Egypt. 
God's promises, right? God promises that he raises up leaders for his purposes, but we need to be focused on those promises. We need to be focused on those promises. Remember in Psalm 115, we read in verses 12 through 14, he will bless, he will bless, he will bless. There is a definite promise there that he will bless those who fear him. But then the psalmist changes his tone just a little bit and he says, may God increase you. May God increase you. He will bless you, but remember, God's blessings don't always look like what we think blessings should look like, but he only might increase you. Do you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham to make him a great nation? Do you know how great nations are made? Population growth. Do you know the fastest way to grow a population? Put them into hard times. Seventy people went into Egypt with Israel. Estimations during the Exodus were that Israel was 4.5 million people. The time in Egypt starting out with great provision and changing over to great suffering caused great population growth. And since the Hebrews were an abomination to the Egyptian. They were disgusted. They didn't intermarry with them. They never cross-breeded, so to speak. But here you had the 12 tribes of Israel growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, so much so that when the Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, came up, he said, they are too numerous for us. We have to kill them all. And God brought them out by his great power and by his great authority in the Exodus and had created exactly what he promised Abraham he would create. His blessing didn't look like a blessing. Can you imagine being one of the Israelites who was born in slavery and died in slavery? Can you imagine living your life crying out to the Lord, why have you forgotten us? But to God, a year is like a... A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And after those 430 years of their time in Egypt, he brought them out a great nation. Just like he built up Egypt as a great nation through Joseph's provision, he built up Israel a great nation because of his promise to Abraham. Finally, I want you to see God's plan. God doesn't always reveal the whole plan to us. Amen? How many of you have been on the backside of that? Me, right? 2018 has been a year of not knowing God's plan. I still don't know God's plan. That's all right. He has a plan, and I know that much. He doesn't always reveal the whole plan to us, and so we must trust and obey. We must trust and obey. We see this last gathering in Genesis chapter 50 where Jacob is gathered to his fathers, and what I mean by that is Jacob passed away. Jacob died. Now we have to reflect just a little bit on if Joseph was so great, if Joseph was the favorite, if Joseph was so wonderful, if Joseph's two sons became two of the tribes of Israel, he had a double portion of the inheritance, why isn't it Joseph from whom the Messiah came? Why is it Judah? I hope you remember the story that I just shared with you, right? Because Judah, in a very 
archetypical way, went to his father as a personal human sacrifice. He went to his father and he said, if Benjamin doesn't come back to you, my life is forfeit. I will go all the way to death to protect him. When it actually came time, when Joseph actually was threatening the silver cup was in his sack, he belongs to me now, Judah was the one that pulled him aside and said, no, 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 my life, my life for his. On his deathbed, Jacob blessed his sons. And you see that recorded in chapter 49, right before we pick up our text. And the section on Judah is at least twice as long as all of the other brothers. And he says very specifically of Judah, in verse 10 of 49, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Later, earlier in verse 9, sorry, in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. You see, his blessing over Judah was in remembrance of this. And if you know, Judah was protecting Benjamin. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. Guess who the two southern tribes were? Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin created a lifelong, not even a lifelong, a generational union together. It was from the tribe of Judah that the Messiah would come, the lion of the tribe of Judah, because of Judah's sacrifice. Now, you know, I have to say one more point before I close this morning. Jacob had these two wives. He had Leah, who he was given first by Laban. He worked for Rachel, but Laban did the bait and switch and put Leah in his place because Leah was the older daughter and, well, she should be married first. So then he worked for seven more years and he got Rachel as a wife. And so he's got these two wives, but he always favored Rachel. And he always favored Rachel's two children, Joseph and Benjamin. You know, see, Jacob wasn't entirely a moral man. Yes, he was a patriarch. Yes, he was chosen by God, but he had his difficulties which is why we love Scripture so much, because it tells us the truth about these characters. Rachel died in childbirth when she was giving birth to Benjamin. And Jacob buried her on the side of the road in a nondescript location somewhere halfway between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And he set up a pillar there, and he commemorated the death of his wife. And there's even a monument there to this day, right? You can go to the tomb of Rachel. It's still there. When Leah was having her children and she had her first three sons, when she had Reuben, she said, surely my husband will love me now. I've given him a son. And then she had Simeon and she said, no, no, surely my husband will love me now. I've given him two sons. And then she had Levi and she said, surely my husband will love me now. I've given him three sons. And then she had Judah and she said, praise the Lord. You see the connection I'm trying to make, right? You see, when Leah died, he laid his first wife to rest in the tomb of the patriarchs next to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca, and when Jacob died, he took his place next to Leah, not Rachel. 
You see, he understood the significance of the birth of Judah because of what Judah did. He understood the significance when he blessed Judah and he said, from you rulers will come and your brothers will bow down to you. And it was because of these selfless acts, I believe, that it was the line of Judah that was blessed with the coming of the Messiah. I've told you this great, long story, one of my favorites. I've told you about Joseph, and I've told you about his dreams, and I've told you about Jacob, and I've told you about these three gatherings, about how Israel was gathered into Egypt, and how Joseph gathered all the wealth, and how Jacob was gathered to his fathers, and I've told you about God's provision, and God's promises, and God's plan, and I told you that I wasn't going to just give you all of the answers and all of the points, but that each one of you was probably going to take something very different away from this message, and I hope that's exactly what happened. I hope you heard that little nugget, that's something that God wanted to place on your heart, that's something that you're going to take and hold to, that's something that's going to cause this gathering of believers to mean that much more to you tomorrow than it did today. You see, in chapter 50 here, right after Jacob passes away, Joseph is now 59 years old. And his brothers are still afraid of him. Jacob passes away and his brothers immediately say, what if Joseph holds a grudge? Well, guess what, gentlemen? What if Joseph does hold a grudge? He's the ruler of everything. He commands everything. He has Pharaoh's authority. All of the land belongs to him. All of the people belong to him. All of the money belongs to him. All of the livestock belong to him. What if he holds a grudge? What if now that your father is dead, he comes after you and gets his repayment for you selling him into slavery all those years ago? What if? It wouldn't be fitting if Joseph did that, though, right? So we have to go back to Scripture and we have to see what Joseph said. Look at verse 15. Pick up reading there. Chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph. They weren't even courageous enough to show up in person. They were still afraid of him. They sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Finally, after all these years, repentance. After all these years, they're finally willing to say, I'm sorry for what I did. At least four times in the story prior to this, Joseph's brothers bow down to him. And we could point to any one of those and say, look, Joseph's dream was fulfilled. His brothers bowed down to him. But each of those four times, they bowed down to him thinking he was the ruler of Egypt, not Joseph, their brother. This time, this time they go into him. And Joseph wept when he spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am I in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. We've probably heard that verse 
read, we've probably quoted that verse so many times. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The buildup is so fantastic. They were finally repentant. They finally bowed down to him, knowing full well he was their younger brother. And he said, no, don't do that. I know that's the fulfillment of the prophecy, but you're still my brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I don't know what your 2018 was like. I don't know where you're at this morning. But if you had a year like I had, I hope this is your prayer. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The most important promise that we can have is the coming of the Messiah. Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of the world. If you don't know him this morning as your personal Savior, we're going to sing a song of invitation. I want you to come as the Spirit moves you. This altar is open for your prayer. I'm here for you.